Good afternoon, everybody. And for those in the Middle East, good morning. I'm Bilahari Kaufikan, the chairman of the Middle East Institute. And we are very honored to have with us today Her Excellency Loa Rashid Al Qatar, the uh, Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs of the Qatar Foreign Ministry and also the ministry's spokesperson. Her career has spanned a, a wide array of fields. I'm not going to try to uh, to, to read them out because it will take most of the time of this lecture. She has done so many things in her very in her short life because as you can see from the screen, she is still quite young. So it's obviously she's a child prodigy. But anyway, Your Excellency, welcome. My only regret is I do not have the pleasure of welcoming you to Singapore in person. Um, and I'm going to turn the floor over to you in a moment. Uh, but just one uh, word of administrative advice. Can those of you who are not me and not our guests, please turn off your volume and turn off your video because we have quite a number of people on screen from all over the world. And the more, the more, the more of you who turn on your video and volume, uh, the less stable the connection becomes. And we don't want to have our guests interrupted. So can I ask you to turn off your videos and turn off your uh, volume until you want to ask a question, which will be later. Now, Your Excellency, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Professor Bilhari. It's uh, such an honor to be with you. I thank you and thank the Middle East Institute for the kind invitation. We've been talking for quite some time now about this uh, lecture, so I'm glad that I'm uh, finally uh, speaking. Um, I was uh, hoping that I would uh, be able to be in Singapore, but due to the pandemic, of course, hopefully uh, next year I can visit you in person. And this is also an open invitation for you to visit us in, in Doha and possibly participate with us in, in Doha Forum as well. So um, our uh, lecture today is going to be about small states uh, in a contested era, a Qatari perspective. And if you allow me, I'll start with the end of this question or the statement that is, what is a contested era? How different is this contested era from what we have experienced as human beings in our uh, history in general. I'm not sure if you can see the screen. Yes, I can see the screen. Wonderful, a... so I'll, I'll start with the first uh, slide in this case. Yes. Please go ahead. Sure, I'm just having some technical difficulty. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. So the global order between two wars, and we're talking here about the first uh, uh, World War One, basically, and the war on terror, and whatever is in between uh, those two wars. Now, the question of peace and war um, has been always centric to the question of politics and international relations. And it seems like the answer in the 20th century has been uh, revolving around uh, notions such as uh, more global collaboration, more multilateralism. After World War I, we saw, for example, the foundation of the League of Nations. But then this has served its objectives or perhaps failed to serve its objectives. So that was replaced by the United Nations. And of course, the discourse of the United Nations has developed over the years. This year, we're celebrating the 75th anniversary uh, of the uh, UN Charter. And there are many questions around 
multilateralism around fixing the global order or possibly disorder in, in this case. And as a matter of fact, we're currently uh, working on a report around the uh, UN uh, Charter. When I say we, this is the Doha Forum, uh, we in this uh, case. And then in the decades uh, after the Second World War, we witnessed the Cold War. Now, no matter how complicated the situation was back then, there was some sort of clarity. I mean, we had, at the end of the day, two main camps. The United States on the one hand, Soviet Union on the other hand. Of course, there was the non-alignment movement, which was formally uh, a non-alignment movement. Realistically speaking, de facto, many of the members of uh, that movement were actually leaning towards one camp or the other. In other words, we had a bipolar uh, global order in one way or the other. But then in the 1990s, George Bush Sr. announced the new global order. When the Soviet Union was out of the picture, Fokuyam, of course, talked about the end of history. The end of history meant the end of struggle. It meant a liberal, a liberal global order. It meant a, a global order that was revolving around notions such as democracy, uh, once again, human rights, multilateralism, in addition to free trade, the GATT agreement, the TRIPS agreement. But then suddenly, in the midst of all of that, we realized it was not the end of history. It was not the liberal global order that everyone had anticipated back then. We entered a new era. And there were many structural changes during that era. So some of those global structural changes, once again, we went from bipolarity to multipolarity, and in between there was the dominance of one pole at one point of time. But the one element that is absolutely unprecedented in our human history is this complete fragmentation of almost everything. Fragmentation of ideas, fragmentation of policies, fragmentation of vision. And this is, in a way, paradoxical in the sense that, on the one hand, possibly thanks to uh, technology, but also thanks to many other notions, we are more interconnected than ever. And yet, with this unprecedented interconnectedness, we also see this unprecedented fragmentation. We have passed the world of big ideas. We no longer have big ideas that we revolve around as a global community. There are sub-ideas and sub-sub-ideas and sub-sub-sub-ideas. This is not just a theoretical assessment of the situation. This has many practical implications. In our policies in general, if we are asked to describe the policy of almost any country today in the international community, it becomes almost impossible to describe a consistent policy. And I remember a term that I'd like to borrow from one Italian colleague. He said it's the world of a la carte policies. So it depends. In this part of the world, this situation, that portfolio, there will always be a different policy. Now, 
The implications of this for small states, such as Qatar, such as Singapore, such as other countries, could be partially and tactically good in the sense that those small countries can navigate through the cracks of this international, sometimes inconsistent system. But then strategically speaking, collectively speaking, this fragmentation is leading us to a very chaotic situation. And of course, there is the decline of multilateralism. And one of the most important yet overlooked structural changes is the shift from human rights-centric discourse and policy to the anti-terrorism-centric approach and policy. This change is not a rhetorical change. This change, my opinion at least, is a paradigm shift. We are shifting everything from liberal notions, human rights notions, even if that was at one point of time just a rhetorical commitment, today we are giving up on even that rhetorical commitment. And with that shift to the anti-terrorism-centric approach, we see many notions and policies that were not tolerated in the past being tolerated today. Does this mean that we don't have the challenge of violent extremism and terrorism? Of course not, we do. But then the question here, what is the impact and the implications of those policies on our other policies in general? Now, to move from the big picture and to focus the discussion on small states. Trying to move the slides. Technology sometimes fails us. Uh, the, yeah, no, it's the other slide, yes. So what are the challenges facing small states? And from this slide, I'm going to move uh, to Qatar specifically. If we look at the Commonwealth as an example, we have 53 members, out of which 31 members are considered to be small states. What are the challenges that those small states are facing? Limited global influence, that's one thing. Weak technical capacity limited access to affordable finance, disproportionate impact of natural disasters and climate change. Now, if we think about those challenges, and we try to draw an analogy with the state of Qatar, or even some other small states in the Gulf, the challenges are a bit different. There is somewhat an overlap when it comes to climate change, for example, Limited global influence, once again, it depends which portfolio. But then there is definitely a difference there. So if we look at Qatar's unique position, and I would say unique position even of some other uh, small Gulf states, Qatar is small in size. Qatar has massive natural resources. I mean, when it comes to the energy, the liquefied natural gas, other contributes more than 33% of the global uh, production of the LNG. 
and the northern field in Qatar is one of the biggest reservoirs in the world. But at the same time, Qatar lives in a very heightened zone and Qatar suffers from drought. It's one of the dry land countries. If you look at the illustration, the diagram there, that is, of course, these are just some examples. So there's Qatar, there's Singapore, there's Norway, there's the Caribbean countries. And there are commonalities, obviously. I mean, Qatar and Singapore, for example, you talk about small countries, you talk about uh, in terms of population, small size. But then one of the main differences is that Qatar has natural resources, whereas Singapore doesn't. Yet one of the common denominators between us is having unfriendly surrounding. And if we shift to Norway, they have a very friendly surrounding, lucky them, and they have natural resources. So this is one of the main differences between Norway and Singapore, but then one of the main common denominators between Norway and Qatar. The Caribbean countries, we had one session with a number of foreign ministers of the Caribbean countries to understand the commonalities and challenges and, and differences. So climate change seems to be a common concern. And we are in one way or the other at the two different ends of the spectrum in the sense that they suffer from hurricanes and whereas we suffer from just the opposite. It's just drought in general. And then of course, one of the main differences is that Qatar has natural resources where these countries are suffering on that front. And there is a little note in the slide there that talks about the exceptionalism of the small Gulf states compared to many other small states. There is the financial surpluses and the ambition in general. And if I am to be more specific about Qatar, we went through an experience in 2017. That is the blockade of Qatar. It was a complete land, sky, uh, sea blockade. And just to understand the situation, Qatar has one land borders that was completely closed. And Qatar used to import 90%, that is 90% of its food and medical supplies from its neighbors. And of course that completely stopped. So in the, especially in the first few weeks, it was a very difficult situation. Of course, the little photo uh, there down the slide became very famous. I mean, if you look it up, uh, when Qatar Airways had to ship uh, basically thousands of, uh, of cows uh, to Qatar because we, we had a, a dire need for uh, dairy products in, in general. But then that blockade uh, was a multidimensional one in the sense that it was coupled with an orchestrated media campaign against Qatar, accusing it of all sorts of accusations. There is the uh, attacks on Qatari currency. As a matter of fact, we have now a number of cases in a number of European countries uh, where we believe that uh, the blockading countries have have used uh, some agencies and, and companies there to manipulate the Qatari Riyal measures uh, against Qataris as individuals separating families. We're talking about currently thousands of families that are separated. And of course, this has affected their, uh, the citizens of the other uh, GCC uh, blockading countries. And just to give you a bit of context, not the entire GCC is blockading Qatar, 
we enjoy excellent relations with countries like Kuwait and Oman. As a matter of fact, part of our diversification of our supply chains depended heavily on them as well. And then part of the measures against the individuals in Qatar, expelling them from hospitals, universities, and even the holy places, closing down businesses, Qatar Airways, for example, but also private businesses. Many of the businessmen in Qatar now, until this very day, cannot access their businesses and their properties in some of the other countries, blockading countries. Blocking Qatar-based media. So if you are living, let's say, in Bahrain or United Arab Emirates, you cannot access Qatari newspapers and so and Qatari websites. In addition to introducing sympathy laws as well, so anyone who shows sympathy with Qatar would subject himself or herself to a penalty or prison. In addition to pirating B and sports channels. Now, B and sports is this giant of sports media that has exclusive rights, pardon me, of broadcasting many championships and the World Cup as well. So that was actually pirated, and we. We just won a case at the WTO against this piracy. Now, if we are to look at that experience, what did Qatar do right? And maybe I should just go back to two steps and, and say that during the, the blockade, I was in the United Kingdom. And many of my colleagues with whom I was talking and, and discussing were telling me Qatar is done, that's it. I remember attending one session at Chatham House uh, and the panelists said, just give them two, three weeks and Qatar would surrender. Of course, we're talking now in 2020 and this has not happened. So the question is, Qatar as a small state, surrounded uh, by unfriendly environment, how was it able to overcome and, and diffuse many of those measures. I don't believe that one size fits all. There are elements that will be beneficial for other small states, other elements that are just very Qatar specific uh, in one way or the other. But then if you look at that pyramid, it has a number of elements. Military prevention, food security, medical uh, security, medical needs, media and communication, wealth, our wealth sovereign fund, other investment authority played a huge role in the beginning of the blockade, the legal movement, and I'll come to that in, in details, public diplomacy, uh, energy uh, expansion, and this might uh, sound uh, paradoxical, uh, that Qatar is under blockade, yet it has expanded, and, and there is a philosophy behind this as well. But then, the first three crucial moves in the first three weeks that we got right were the following military prevention and this went in two ways one as many of you would know we have the american military base in qatar so communicating with our american allies uh, and the state or the department of, of defense uh, in in the us played a huge role in deterring the possibility of an invasion in addition to that was the also agreement that we had signed actually with Turkey prior to the blockade and it was accelerated during the blockade and within a few days we also received some support 
on that front. Of course, the late Amir of Kuwait, Sheikh Sabah, said that we, he meant we as, as mediators, were able to stop a military invasion of Qatar. So once again, the military movement, but then the, the mediation played a role in that. Political resilience, that's important as well. Our foreign minister in the first few days used to go to three different countries on the same day, explaining our narrative. Because in the beginning, we received many, many questions. The campaign against us was just massive. We didn't expect it. And that's why there was a lot, a lot, a lot of work to clarify our positions to our allies. And I should recall here the position of Germany. The foreign minister of Germany was the first top official in the international community to make any comment against the measures that were taken against Qatar. That played a huge role in shifting the dynamics, diplomatically speaking. Because after that, we saw a number of countries condemning the measures. And by the end of 2017, we saw even the French president here in Doha in December talking about the need to stop some of the measures against the Qatari people in general. And then, of course, the immediate alternative supply chains. We were able to secure alternative passages. A number of countries played a role in that including Iran played a role in that. And ironically enough, at the time, we had no diplomatic ties with Iran. We had cut them off in solidarity uh, with Saudi a year before the blockade. But then we managed to go beyond those passages. We have secured other alternatives with our friends in Iran, our friends in Kuwait, our friends in Iraq as well. And we have launched our new port, which currently dominates or constitutes around 30% of the trade in the Middle East, even though it was only launched in 2017. And despite all the challenges that are facing international organizations, I started off with that and how multilateralism in general is declining. Yet, interestingly enough, we found out that pursuing those paths in general, when it comes to international law and international organizations and United Nations uh, agencies, we found that this still has some sort of impact and authority. And I'll come to the details of that. I have a, a detailed table. If we put this vis-a-vis -vis the undermining of international law and the approach of the blockading countries, I would tell you that much of what we have achieved, we did not achieve because of our brilliance, for example, as much as we have achieved because of the mistakes of the other countries who thought that they can pursue informal ways and bypass international law altogether. The piracy of BN sports and many, and the manipulation of the currency are just some examples. And at the communication level, it was interesting to see the strategy that the blockading countries uh, followed, because this became clear later on. It was not clear to us in the very beginning. And that is resorting to third-tier media.
and orchestrated campaigns on social media through bots. This was not clear in the very beginning. Now, I should admit, tactically, that was influential. Strategically, I think this became very problematic for them because it portrayed them in a certain way. For example, Twitter has suspended and only two weeks ago continued suspending more accounts. Many, many fake accounts that are owned by state agencies or affiliated with state agencies, including individuals and Twitters who are suspended because of their relationship to some of those countries. So my point here is, once again, yes, we might be living in a post-truth era, if you wish. Uh, fake news is all over the place. We saw that with the pandemic, for example. Yet, it seems like factual approaches, rational approaches, still resonate in the long run. And that's why, for example, when you go to first-tier media, you see hardly any presence to many of the narratives that we see in the third-tier media propagated through agencies and agents of uh, the blockading countries. Pursuing more rational approaches, more fact-based approaches, is not a bad choice at the end of the day. It turned out. The hidden factor, of course, in all of that is the unity of the internal front. Many were counting uh, on some sort of a disintegration within uh, the society of Qatar. This did not happen, and this was certainly very helpful. Now, resilience and multidimensional and the multidimensional approach. Once again, as I mentioned, I mean, we have around maybe 18 international cases against the blockading countries, uh, the ICJ, International Court of Justice, uh, World Trade Organization, the ICAO, the Aviation Organization, and CERT Committee at the UN. Just to give you a few examples, for example, with the air disputes, we have proceedings under the Convention on the International Civil Aviation and the International Air Services Transit Agreement. Human Rights Front, we have proceedings before the International Court of Justice under the International Convention on the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. Uh, once again, uh, Human Rights Front, we have proceedings before the CERT Committee under the International Convention on, all, uh, on the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination, pardon me. Uh, Trade-wise, we have a case against the piracy of Indian sports, which I referred to earlier. We continue with trade. There is a case also against uh, one of the blockading countries before the World Trade Organization. As a matter of fact, two of them, that one. Uh, postal services uh, disputes. We have interstate arbitrations instituted under the framework of the Universal Postal Union. Currency manipulation. We have cases in London. We have also cases in other countries that uh, Unfortunately, some blockading countries try to play with, invoke the systems uh, there and using some agencies and institutions. So beyond the multidimensional approach, there is an important lesson there. And I think it's a lesson for all small states. This lesson is diversifying dependencies. Very important. The old saying uh, says, 
or states that uh, one should not be putting all the eggs in, in one basket. And this is exactly the lesson. So diversifying economic dependencies through diversifying the supply chains. Our mistake in the past was depending on one or two supply chains with no alternatives. Political dependencies. Once again, I mean, it's very important for small states to remain as much as possible neutral in many uh, disputes and be useful at the same time. And I'll be talking a little bit about how small states can be useful, how others try to be useful in mediation some of the disputes. So diversifying political dependencies is extremely important, cannot emphasize this enough, and diversifying our security dependencies. Military-wise, but also security in its very holistic sense, for example, uh, food security. So just to read some facts here, Qatar currently ranks uh, as the first country in the Middle East and the 13th in the world for food security according to the Global Food Security Index in 2019. In 2017, that's the year of the blockade, Qatar's GDP actually increased, interestingly enough. Today we outnumber the other uh, countries in the, in the GCC when it comes to those indicators as well in terms of our expansion in the LNG sector, Qatar Petroleum QP is raising its LNG production capacity to 121 million tons per annum by 2027. And QP, Qatar uh, Petroleum, continues uh, basically expanding its projects and agreements. Just to give you an example, it has signed an agreement with ExxonMobil to uh, construct uh, a project on the Texas Gulf Coast. That's one example. Interestingly enough, Qatar Petroleum actually participated in establishing a company in Egypt, and it was announced in 2019. Egypt, of course, is one of the blockading uh, countries. Yet, the strategic decision that Qatar has taken when it comes to the energy is not to politicize the energy sector. At the end of the day, Qatar, when it comes to LNG, is considered one of the leaders and politicizing this sector is going to be problematic for everyone. The, uh, I think it's called the uh, refinery company, Egypt refinery uh, company that was announced in 2019. In addition to that, Qatar continues uh, along the lines of not politicizing the sector, continues to support and supply the United Arab Emirates with its uh, LNG needs. Uh, around 40% of UAE's LNG consumption comes from Qatar through a pipeline and project, a joint venture to Qatar and the UAE called Dolphin. If we move to the um, second slide, how small states can be relevant and useful? That's an important element as well. I'll, I'll give two examples, one in COVID-19 and one is beyond COVID-19. And honestly, with this slide, I was thinking, shall I say be relevant, be useful, or be indispensable? But then I came to realize that it seems like all countries, and especially small countries in the world global order that we're living in, uh, could be spareable. So it will not be accurate for my side to say this, but at least to be relevant and useful. In COVID-19, for example, Qatar Airways is one of the very few airlines that is 
that are still operating and connecting the different global destinations together. We have received unlimited requests from different countries, companies, institutions, the UN, to support with repatriating citizens or employees back to their countries or back to places where they need to do necessary operations and, and jobs. Qatar Airways so far repatriated around 2 million global citizens. In addition to that, we're partnering with the NATO to airlift uh, medical uh, aid and uh, humanitarian aid to a number of countries. Qatar Airways provides 30% discount on medical and COVID-19 related cargo. Many of these projects are supported uh, by the uh, or the repatriation specifically of many citizens. It's actually supported directly by the Qatar government. In other words, we pay Qatar Airways to do that because Qatar Airways is uh, a private company. If we move to being relevant and being useful um, at a political level, I mean, this table shows some of those mediation efforts since 2017. So in 2017, Qatar mediated a, a ceasefire uh, agreement between, at the time, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was the president at the time, and, and the Houthis. In 2018, the Lebanese factions, I mean, for 18 months, uh, Lebanon went into a presidential vacuum, and Qatar helped basically uh, bridge the gap and uh, uh, to bridge the gap, the gap, pardon me, and resolve the situation back then. Um, I remember some of our diplomats when they talk about this experience, those who experienced it firsthand, uh, they said at one point of time we had to lock down all the politicians in one place here in Qatar, the Sheraton, uh, which is probably known to you, uh, Professor Bilhari. So, um, and that was uh, the way to reach an agreement. In 2009, Sudan and Chad, there was a, a mediation as well, and uh, ended uh, by signing the Doha Accord. In 2010, Djibouti and Eritrea, once again, there was a, a ceasefire and an agreement. As a matter of fact, at one point of, of time, we had Qatari personnel at the borders uh, there, uh, 2011, the Sudanese government and the rebel factions, uh, as the Arabic representative uh, at the time, there was uh, a mediation uh, or a number of mediation uh, rounds uh, ended with the signing in 2011, Sudan and Eritrea, uh, Hamas. Now, unfortunately, I mean, there was an agreement that was signed, but of course, the situation there is very much complicated yet. I should say uh, one point here. I think the positioning of Qatar, unlike many other parties who have alienated themselves in one way or the other when it comes to the Palestinians, gives it some sort of an advantage to be able to mediate, not only within the Palestinian factions, but across the board between the Palestinians and the Israelis as well. In fact, only recently we have helped de-escalate the situation in Gaza between uh, Hamas and uh, Israel. 
So once again, I mean, Qatar is in a position where it can talk to all parties with absolute neutrality and it's perceived as, as such. 2015 in Libya, uh, once again, between the Tawarq and Tabu, uh, the two uh, tribes, there was an agreement and uh, mediation. Now, the famous uh, Taliban US agreement, I say the famous because it's only recent, it was signed in February, the 29th of February 2020. And in addition to that, uh, we have currently, as we're talking, the intra-Afghan-Afghan -Afghan negotiations as well. So the, the main two parties in Afghanistan are currently in negotiations. Those efforts uh, did not come out of the blue or happen overnight. Uh, it took Qatar and the US and some other countries who at one point of time basically facilitated or helped, such as Norway or Germany, uh, took us a number of years. And we're glad that this was finally crowned with some success. We're hoping that uh, all the parties will maintain their uh, part of the agreement. More than happy to elaborate on the elements of the agreement or any other questions that you might have. And I think one of the successful stories that we have here in Qatar is the fact that in the uh, negotiation uh, team from the government side, we have a number of women representing not only Afghan women, representing all of Afghanistan as well. The fact that Taliban are currently sitting with Afghan women, this is definitely a milestone. And we are seeing changes in the dynamics. I was absolutely surprised when I saw some of the members from the Taliban negotiation, uh, negotiation team showing so much respect, almost standing up when they see some of the Afghan women uh, passing by. Now, once again, there is a breakthrough there. We need to build on that and uh, wish them best of luck at the end of the day. The Afghanistan question can only be resolved by the Afghans themselves. And we're only facilitators there. Small states can play a role in diffusing polarization. We saw the tensions at the beginning of this year, 2020, between Iran and the United States after the attack on the embassy in Iraq and then the uh, attack that killed General Soleimani. Qatar, alongside other countries, played a role in diffusing the tensions and we think that small states should perceive the role as a role of de-escalation, avoiding polarization, and we should not be uh, falling a prey of polarization and taking sides and, and axes. I'll conclude with this note. I, I realize that I have taken more time than I should have taken, but just beyond politics, if, if you allow me, Professor Lamar. Uh, one, one of the main questions uh, when it comes to uh, small states, beyond politics, beyond uh, the hard elements, is a question of identity, right? I mean, if you look at the photos in this slide, it's interesting simply because all of these photos 
belong to the same place in Qatar, the same landmark. One of them, as you can see, is the amphitheater. It's Roman architecture. You see that these two kind of towers, traditional towers, this is Qatari traditional architecture. You see this very awkward looking building. It's actually a gift. It's, it's like a gift box. It's, it's a building, it's an actual building. Is this modern? Is this postmodern? I don't know, but it's for sure not a traditional kind of architecture. And then you see this building, that's just another photo of the previous one. And you see these two sculptures. I'm not sure if you can see this, the cursor, but one of them looks like a soldier with a mask, an awkward mask. And the other one um, is a woman, I think, holding the globe. All of these photos belong to this same place and landmark. Let me ask you, Professor Belhari, to give me some comments. What comes to your mind when you see that? Which one? All of that. This slide. Well, I am a different position because I've been to your country. And I think what you have done architecturally to create a, a city which is modern, but of the region and unique is something uh, really admirable. You have made the city as a destination in itself. That's what comes to my mind. Thank you very much, Professor Bilhari. I, I have a friend of mine who's, who's an architect. Yeah. And because she's an architect, she keeps complaining about the identity, right? Yeah. What identity? Where's our identity? And at one point of time, I was convinced, right? Up until recently, I was in a discussion with a group of colleagues who studied history and they were talking about the formations of identities in the Arab region in the late 19th century, when we had colonial powers on the one hand, Ottoman Empire on the other hand, are we Arabs, are we Ottomans, are we Muslims, are we Christians? Are we... It's just this smash of identities in a way, right? And as they were discussing and describing, it suddenly made absolute sense in my mind. It clicked that unlike what my architect friend is, was saying, this is the actual representation of the current formation of the Qatari identity in the sense that it's, it's basically a mix of different timelines belonging to a certain tradition, but then being modern having a cosmopolitan city with 120 plus nationalities, but then longing to Arabic language, for example, or certain elements in the Qatari traditional culture. Globalization, all of these elements are kind of being mixed together and are reflected in the kind of the very diverse landscape that we see, a mix of timelines, a mix of cultures, a mix of different types of architecture, a mix of views of the world. This is probably what we're going through. Now, the question is, is this 
to small states? Is this specific to Qatar? Is this specific to, since we're talking about Middle East, to Muslim or Arab countries? In fact, the answer is no. Someone like Samuel Huntington wrote a book saying, who are we? The challenges facing America's identity. And he talked about the influence of the Mexican culture and globalization and pizza. And so it seems like all countries are going through this struggle. And I know from talking to many friends in Singapore, the question of identity is definitely one that is present in Singapore as well. I'll conclude with this point. There are many lessons to draw from Singapore's experience. Not least is its model of human capital development. This is one of the things that I think here in Qatar and in many other countries, we need to learn a lot about. Thank you so much, Professor, and my sincere apologies. I might have taken more time than I should have.